2: Good morning, everyone. This is Lou Piro, your host for today. Welcome to Life Happens Radio. Are you prepared? And this is the show every week that brings you information relevant to your your lifestyle. Getting to know the things that you need to do from a day-to-day basis right on through to the rest of your life. Looking at planning, estate planning, long-term care, insurance issues, and all the things that we have to do as planners. Uh, Pierre O'Connor & Associates, in a law firm here in Latham, we do estate planning, elder law, business planning. Today I have, fortunately with me, today, my special host and special guest, Bob Vandy of advisors, insurance brokers. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Lewis. And I'd like to introduce our special guest for today and get right into it. We have with us a former congressman, former colonel in the Army, and current professor at Williams College, Chris Gibson. Good morning, Chris. Hey, Lou. Good morning. And Bob as well. Great to be back with you both. Good to have you here, Chris. Great to have you back. And the last time you sat in this seat, you had announced your run for governor.
3: No, not run. I said I was looking at looking it. I at never okay. announced that <laughs> I was right. going to do announced it.
2: Announced that you were interested in running for governor, and, and you gave us a full plate of all the things that you were looking at doing for New York State, and, and it got us all excited. Uh, unfortunately, that didn't work out. So tell our listeners since then where you've been and what you've been doing.
3: Yeah, well, thanks, Lou. Uh, first of all, you know the timing was just not right for us. Uh, three... Uh, you know, teenagers, and including uh, our son, Connor, who's uh, moving towards graduation now. So, you know, I, I, we moved in a different direction. I took the uh, position at Williams College. Uh, I teach three courses up there, mm-hmm. uh, one on leadership, one on national security, one on American foreign policy. And I do some writing. Uh, this book, that's out uh, about six, seven months ago, Rally Point. I do a column with Times Union. And mostly I have much more time. Uh, for family. So whereas I used to work 90 to sincerely 90 to 100 hours a week, seven days a week. Now I work about 35 to 40 hours a week. I have a, I have a real life. You that's know? And that's uh, a different lifestyle. Yeah. So and I try to help out still where I can. You know, I'm uh, you know, I work with folks who are aspiring to leadership, elected leadership, and I try to help them prepare for that. And I'm still involved in veterans issues. Uh, I, I'm on a board um, with Springbrook, which helps, uh, you know, souls with uh, with intellectual and physical disabilities, and, and, and uh, so, you know, that's a great service as well. So, life is still full, mm-hmm. but it's just uh, different in terms of our, our priorities. You Not know, that really, hectic piece. Yeah. That's <laughs> well, no, really good.
2: You are a congressman, and, uh, you know, I talk to people around the community, and everybody says, well boy, we really lost one that was one of the good ones. And Lord knows there's a swamp down there that, Yeah, there is. that we need good people. But you, you made a pledge, three terms and out, and, and you stuck to that.
3: Well, I, I definitely believe in term limiting uh, our elected leaders. We were never meant to have a permanent political class. I mean, uh, I say this argumentatively, but if, you know, with a permanent political class, how's that any different from a king or queen? This is always meant to be a government of the people, by the people, for the people. And to do that, we need to inspire young folks uh, to come forward to serve us for a period of time. That's partly why I'm still involved in mm-hmm. this and mentoring uh, Jake Ashby, for example, is a, a veteran uh, who now is in elected office. He's a, he's an assemblyman from the 107th district, but he's an example of somebody who I worked with a little bit over the past uh, year, year and a half, and I'm excited to see his future It's just one example. So, But I do think we need citizen legislators. If we're going to sort through these problems, we have to have people who understand our our challenges here and if we have a
2: permanent political class they're completely disconnected from that when new york state went to a permanent legislature malcolm wilson was here and his quote was there goes the neighborhood (laughs) yeah because now you have permanent career politicians and a a career politician is out to do one thing well get reelected. well i mean you know in one sense it
3: makes sense right because all of us to a degree we're all pursuing our interests that's part of what you know the adam smith sort of philosophy of a free society so we get that on the one hand but on the other hand if there aren't checks against that then you know their number one priority is going to be re-election and so you know this is why i think the term limiting is really important by the way that's not the only um, uh, reform that yeah. i bring forward in this
2: book and we're going to get point. into the book in, yeah. in
3: depth but uh, but term limits is one of them but you know mm-hmm. you need independent redistricting you need campaign finance reform of the right kind Absolutely. you need lobbying bans all these things need to come together because we need to restore confidence and faith
2: And in this uh, self-governance. So our government has become so Mm hyper-partisan. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that. Partly what you just said, because we've allowed the system to become a primary system. And the primaries have become the elections. And the primaries are controlled by, by fringes. Not fringes, but the outside elements of the parties. And the center doesn't really have that voice that it used to have when we had fair elections and and campaign limits? I'll tell you, Lou. I mean, it really, there are several factors
3: bearing on the problem, but the most uh, significant of all of them is how we draw the lines. So, you know, all the story today is about the hyper-partisanship, and there's too much of that. But you miss the bipartisan collusion that goes on behind closed doors every 10 years. Because after we count all the Americans, the, the the uh, Constitution requires us to then go through a reapportionment and a redistricting process. It is captured by career politicians in the state house who draw the congressional lines mm-hmm. to protect to protect incumbents. And that used to be done through the courts. Uh, no, there's a storied history about this, but uh, but the fact of the matter is, over time now, uh, it has been captured, and so we now draw these lines to protect incumbents at all costs. That's why you wonder how does. Yeah, you know, we get these districts that look ridiculous. I mean, it's just, you know, one just follows I-85 down in uh, North Carolina. I mean, there's one in Illinois that's just, uh, it's unbelievable. Looks sawtoothed. If uh, it's look just unbelievable. The and, and the reason why, again, is because they are solely focused on drawing lines. To protect incumbents. We have this illusion that we pick our representatives when too often representatives pick their voters mm-hmm. through this process. Mm-hmm. It needs to change. Here's why. Because, you know, when this gets done, when the smoke clears from this, those representatives, they already know that they're not going to face a competitive election in November. Right. But they could face a competitive election in the spring if they're seen as coming to the center. So, you know, my issue, I'm strongly principled. I got some strong views. We'll probably get into them here in Rally Point. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, you got to balance your budget. You got to pay your bills. You, the train's got to run on time. You know, this is sort of the military ethos coming out in me, but well, also
2: conservatism. Absolutely, w- which has been just tossed aside.
3: Well, it has been, and but you know, this conservatism I have is really steeped in founding principles. Yeah. founding principles themselves in the 18th century were decidedly liberal. Liberal in the classical sense, in that it believed in you it believed in the listeners it believed in people we did we put our faith in people not in governments and you know what's happened over time is we've seen this thing evolve in ways that are really not helpful to us as a body politic we have seen power consolidated not dis, not dis, uh, dispersed as initially it was supposed to be it's been consolidated into the executive branch and we've seen presidents from both political parties take us off to war without the consent of the government we know we largely no longer do significant political change through this process of rule of law we now hand it over by fiat to executive orders and actions and hopefully we'll have a chance to explain why that is this is not just an well, academic point it's tar- this is memorial
2: memorial day weekend so Let's talk about one of our country's greatest soldiers, and I love this part of the book, George Washington, Uh, our founding president, and his beliefs of what the presidency should be, and and you likened it back to a a Roman soldier who came in off the farm to battle in Rome. I love your history and the historical allusions in the book, and folks, if you haven't read Rally Point, go out and get it. Congressman Chris Gibson talking about not only what's happening today, but comparing it and and giving us a historical perspective so George Washington one of my favorite characters in American history absolutely
3: well a couple things on this Uh, first of all a real a true servant I mean a reluctant servant I mean he really was very comfortable being on his farm like Cincinnati was happy to live out the rest of his days there and you know what actually got him off the farm I'm talking now 1787 was Shay's Rebellion which which Mm -hmm. happened not far from here Mm -hmm. I mean we had we had one and we had Liberty And we had chaos. We had liberty and chaos, and we were really struggling. We couldn't pay our bills. Uh, It turns out Chase was actually an incredible young man who had enlisted at the age of 18, was very charismatic, to fight for the cause. He believed in the cause. And what ends up happening is he fights the whole time and in the end gets back home to Springfield, Massachusetts, and the government moves to foreclose on his farm. They said, we want you to pay back taxes. He said, you know, I'd be happy to pay it. If you guys paid me yeah, for my service pay me and, me and I'll pay in the you. Army, I'll pay you back. We we required – so the, the short of it is is that that Shays Rebellion, because of the integrity of that man, Shays, that young man, Shays, he had farmers from far and wide that came and fought with him. When Washington got word of all this, he said, ha, I'm mm-hmm. going to have to go to Philadelphia because we had to find a way to address the circumstances. We had – we had all kinds of domestic intranquility, so Washington gets up off the farm again mm-hmm. and goes to Philadelphia. In this section of the book, I call it the spirit of Philadelphia. Certainly the first uh, instantiation of that was the Declaration of Independence, but then it's the Constitutional Convention. This is so important to understanding why we're in trouble today yeah. because we've drifted from this because there. I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding about the Constitution. The Const- Constitution itself was meant to bring a balance between liberty And security, because we had liberty and we didn't really have security. It was meant to arrange the relationships to protect our liberty, that we wouldn't have an overreach on the part of any institution of government. But ultimately, they put together a document, the Constitution, that itself was a compromise. And it was meant to drive compromise. And the reason why is we were trying to escape history. The history of political change before us, before the United States of America, was violent. And we said it doesn't have to be like that. We can, we can have peaceful evolutionary change if we commit to rule of law. And what's happening now is we're moving away from rule yeah. of law. Peace through strength and domestic tranquility. George Washington, uh, in his farewell address, he warns us against several things, but he certainly talks about the problems we're going to have. You know, he said, look, we did something incredibly special and we're going to be a target. Because mm-hmm. we, the heads of state of Europe gave us no chance. This will never work out. The idea that we could govern ourselves was crazy talk back then. We we're mostly farmers. And so Washington said they're going to want to take us down because once they see us survive and then flourish, we're going to be a threat to the kings and the queens and the whole order, the old order. And so Washington said be very careful. With alliances. He yes. says if you end up entangling yourself, you're gonna end up in world wars that are not in the interest of Americans, not putting America first, not protecting citizens and draining on the Treasury. He warned us against entanglements. The other thing he warned us against was partisanship, was parties themselves because of how it would lead to disunity.
4: according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.
3: was sage. He was wise in his advice to us then
2: and it still applies. In fact, arguably more now than ever. I'm I hate to do this, it today. but we're going to take a short break. And folks, you can call us if you want to have a question for chris gibson former congressman here live on life happens radio you're listening to lou pirro bob vandy chris gibson we'll be back and if you want to call us here's the number it's 800 talk wgy that's 800 825 5949 we're going to be right back great stuff coming rally point chris gibson don't go away Welcome back to Life Happens Radio. Are you prepared? Today we're talking about government. We're talking about philosophy. We're talking about history with former Congressman Chris Gibson. Uh, And again, you can give us a call if you want to join in the conversation, 800-825-5949. And Congressman Gibson wrote a book, Rally Point, Five Tasks to Unite the Country and Revitalize the American Dream. And at the last session, we were talking about George Washington and the founding fathers and the prediction that this democracy is a gift, not a right, and something that we have to work for. Every generation, every generation
3: has a responsibility to renew the social contract. And really, this is my, you know, I'm answering a calling here in this book, Rally Point, because I believe that, you know, we're in real challenges right now. I mean, clearly you, you watch the news and you see the talk about the divide. I mean, that's certainly concerning to me, but I'm concerned about some deep issues that we have, the, the problems we're having with deficit and debt and what that could mean to all of us. I'm concerned about uh, even the state of self-governance. We have handed over
2: so much power into the executive branch. It was never meant mm. to be like this. Well, just this week, meetings with the Department of Justice and, well, and looking at law and, and the the legal department that's supposed to have independent judgment well, well what's your take uh, on
3: it's a concern the whole piece of this but here let me just say this because there's a temptation today because so many people view this through the lens of partisanship so it depends on what your partisanship is right so i've watched this happen i was a soldier for many years but you know as the first republican ever in my family i remember shuttling back and forth to iraq and I remember here in the left talking about George W Bush. They said he is he is basically governing by fiat. You know, we got this Gitmo, we got this enhanced interrogation. None of this was voted on by the Congress. They said, "Look, he's doing these signing statements. Essentially, this is all executive orders and actions." And I right. remember even as a Republican saying, you know, they got a, they got a point. This is supposed to be a representative democracy, a republic, right? So here's what happens. A few years later, Barack Obama's president, and I'm in the chamber now. I'm a member of Congress, and President Obama urged the Congress. He said, Congress, I urge you to act, but if you don't, I got a pen and I got a phone, and I'm going to act. And here's what happened. Strange dynamic. Just a few years earlier, you had the right um, apologizing for Bush, basically saying, look, well, you know, he has to. It's a time of war. It's exigencies. We just, And the left was saying, no, that's not in concert with the Constitution, And then a few years later, you had the left stand up and cheer. When Obama said that, they said, finally, Congress is not acting, so the president's going to act. And then you had the folks who were apologizing for Bush saying, no, that's contra to the Constitution. And then you look at where we are today. Uh, Set aside the tax bill, because that's really the only piece of major legislation. And by the way, they didn't do it Reagan-esque. I had a problem with the way they constructed the tax bill, but Mm -hmm. let's put it aside for a second. I mean, other than that, uh, you know Donald Trump was saying look i've done more than any other president look regardless if you like him or don't like him he's only making my point because he's only enacted one piece of significant legislation. So, you know, the point is, is whether you're George W. Bush, Barack Obama or Donald Trump, we see now this country moving away from rule of law and you see embracing widespread embracing of executive orders and actions and what it's doing. I'll tell you, Lou, it's tearing us apart. Yeah, it's become because, systemic and well, endemic. And so where is Congress? So where, where is Congress well, in all y- of this? They've yielded. And I, I want to make this. This is a very important point because some people say, well, OK, that's an academic. Point. This is not an academic point because – remember what I mentioned in the first section there? I said that the Constitution itself was a compromise meant to drive compromise because when you have to go through that process of listening to the people you're representing, showing up in Congress, drafting bills – discussing, debating bills, amending bills, voting on bills, that process itself does two things. One is it, it realizes the symbiosis among legislators. I mean, that's change is never easy. It's not easy in our personal lives. Right. It's not easy yeah. in our relationships. It's not easy in government, but sometimes it's necessary. And so you have to find a way to work together because our founder said, if you don't work together, in the absence of consensus, you keep the status quo, right? Mm-hmm. So that process itself, stitches the
2: communities across this country together. That's the second piece. And if you, you look at the 13 colonies, they were much more diverse. Different. Very, very Much different. more diverse than our 50 states are
3: Very today. different. And this is what Washington was talking about when he warned us against partisanship. He said, look, these other nations, when they see the liberty that we have, they're going to be envious of it. And they're going to be concerned about it. And they're going to try to pick us off one by one. And they were already doing that. You know, what was happening when when our leaders met in Philadelphia for the convention, you know, what they were dealing with is we had states that were starting to coin money, that we had states that were beginning to enter treaty obligations with other nations, and our founders realized we're coming apart. We were truly a confederacy. I know that word Mm -hmm. today conjures up, you know, the 1860s, but we were the articles of confederacy. I mean, Mm -hmm. we were were a confederacy. That is, we put the large part of sovereignty— First of all, it started with individuals, with citizens. Sovereignty started with us. That's the whole idea of self-governance. But we put the preponderance of power in the states. That's why we chose that word. We could have chose district.
2: We could have chose. I mean, we chose state. And now federalism has become a matter of convenience. Well, if it's an issue that you want to get out of the federal government because you're the party in power, you you punt it to the states. But then when you get in power, you take all those issues back. So you know to make
3: this point to tie it back to what I'm going in rally point is that. Part of the reason why we're so divided is because we're not doing political change the way the founders envisioned, which is through the rule of law. When you do it through executive orders and actions, whether you be on the left with Barack Obama or on the right with Donald Trump or George W. Bush, you know what ends up happening is the party opposite, regardless of party – I think that's what you're alluding to – regardless of party – the party opposite questions the legitimacy of the action. So what basically happens is we end all or nothing in the presidential campaign. And if you win, the spoils of political change go yes. to you. And if yes. you
2: lose, you just call it into question. And now we're seeing how much those spoils are being marketed. Yeah, Um, in a variety of ways. But
3: as as somebody who looks at this through a historical lens, I just want to be careful here for a moment because what's all the rage today is the left is railing against Trump and they've got their beefs and we can go back and forth on that. But my point to you is I've seen this dynamic in my life. And the right railed against Obama and we repent and and on and on and on. So this is where the reforms we need is we need to restore trust. I mean, when when Donald Trump and uh, Bernie Sanders talked about this system being rigged, that we have a swamp in Washington D.C. Both of these candidates said this, and I, I'm a glass five six full always type of guy. Mm-hmm. I wish I could look you in the eye and tell you that they were wrong. They're not wrong. Yeah, it is a swamp down there, and we do need to drain it, and we need we need fundamental reforms.
0: Chris, you you've been you you in the book and even in our conversation, you're hitting a wide spectrum. And one of the things you brought up was the fiscal issues that we're yes. facing, which is a huge deal: the debt and the deficit. My fear, and we've actually, we've had, Lou and I have had uh, David Walker on the program, former comptroller of the currency, and we've talked about a lot of these issues. I wonder if we've reached a point, and I don't know if we'll have a chance to have you fully answer this before the break, but I wonder if we've reached a point where we just rule by crisis, you know, the proverbial kicking the can down the road. Has it become so habitual that yeah. it, it, we anticipate it and therefore Look, we accept it?
3: There's one bill that could actually begin to right the ship here. It was the Simpson-Bowles Deficit mm-hmm. Reduction Commission. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I voted it. for that yep. bipartisan budget, uh, which was fiscally uh, conservative but necessary. Mm-hmm. We had 38 votes in mm-hmm. the entire U.S. House. Scary. And, you know, my record, I mean, I was known as somebody who brought people together in Congress, but it's I want to be clear here, five of the years, of the six— that I served in Congress we reduced the deficit mm-hmm. we reduced it you know the year the day I was elected it was almost 1.5 trillion for a single year we got it down to 400 billion when we came together to reduce the deficit i voted for it I did not vote for the last budget, and you know people say that's out of character. You always Mm. support the the bipartisan compromises, not when it's adding to the deficit. I voted against it. This is the problem today in 2018. You know the way they deal with problems? They get everybody around the table and they say yes, 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 yes. Are we ready to vote? That omnibus
2: that was just enacted a couple months ago was atrocious. Mm. We're going to have terrible bill. Take a short break for the news. Stay with us. Former Congressman Chris Gibson rally point. Go buy the book. You can get it right now online. And we're going to be talking about it in the second half of the show and Chris Gibson's ideas to reform the government, all the issues we have today. How can we get back on track to bring America back to where those founding fathers wanted us to be? Stay with us. We'll be right back after the news. You're listening to Life Happens. Happy Memorial Day weekend, everyone. You're listening. To John Life cougar Ken right there, too. <laughs> Absolutely. Geez, we even got
0: Chris dancing in the studio. Good job, Zach.
2: <laughs> it is the USA, and, and we are here today talking with former congressman, congressman Chris Gibson. I want to give you an opportunity, folks, to get an education. We're doing a seminar on estate planning. It's Maximize Wealth and Protect the Next Generation. We do a lot of educational programs. We think that smart clients are good clients, so June 13th at 10 a.m. at the Saratoga Golf and Polo Club. You can join us, and we're going to talk about how to plan for retirement and to secure your retirement throughout your lifetime. June 13th, 10 a.m., Saratoga Golf and Polo Club. And you can always sign up on our website, pirolaw.com. Go to events. And you can also call our hotline right now. Get this number, 518-608-6998. Again, 518-608-6998. I hope to see you there. June 13th, 10 a.m. Beautiful place, the Saratoga Golf and Polo Club. And we'll be talking about wealth planning, estate planning, how to secure your future and secure your children. Because, gentlemen, I fear for my children's future. Looking at where we are going and, and how this ship is listing at this point in time, Chris, you're talking about rally in Rally Point the history of the country and where we have gone, why it's gone off the rails, and you have five points to bring us back. So the deficit is certainly one of the major issues, yes. and not only the deficit, because we're at $21 trillion, I believe, yes. right now. But as, as Bob said, David Walker, the former Comptroller General, has been on the show a couple of times. Part of the group that you and I have both supported, as has Bob, no labels, and the Problem Solvers Caucus down in Washington. David Walker was one of the founders of that, but he's one of the most astute people. And you mentioned balancing the budget; he was there the last time it happened. Yeah, under Clinton, with Newt Gingrich on one side, Bill Clinton on the other, and they compromised. Yeah, to balance the budget, but step into the
4: world of
2: power loyalty.
4: The the number that he throws at us is the unfunded
2: mandates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, seventy five trillion dollars. This is Medicare, unsustainable. veterans we, we, benefits, social security. How do we get back to where this is reality?
3: Well, let me just say this to tie it back to the American dream. You know, to put a finer point on the American dream, because it means sometimes different things to different people, but generally speaking, the American dream has meant two things to most Americans. First is is this pursuit of happiness. This was very radical. In fact, when you look at the natural rights that come from God, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, arguably the most radical was pursuit of happiness because for our country, you were born a serf, you die to surf. Right. That's the way it was. That's just what we said, no, you have a God-given right to your own potential. You have the right to that. That is government's responsibility is to secure that right. And then you rise as hard as you, can, as hard as you work and everything else.
0: Which in the book, by the way, you term it promote a flourishing life. A flourishing so a little life. Bit of a, yeah.
3: Absolutely. There's a whole chapter. That's one of the tasks we mm-hmm. need to really work on is, is that's the economy, right? But that was only one half of the American dream. The other half of the American dream was always that we— wanted to set up our children to be in a stronger position than we, where we started. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, you know, people think, well, you know, this spirited discussion, this divide we have now, I mean, you know, maybe this is the worst ever. Well, we fought a civil war. We've had divide before. And if you didn't think we, did, we had spirited conversation, look at the election of 1896, unbelievably spirited. I mean, it's just incredibly how active it, and how many people voted. But here's one thing. Regardless of whether you were a Democrat and Republican in 1896, the idea... That you would spend a trillion dollars more than you take in was – nobody would ever do it because of the American dream. We -hmm. can have all kinds of fights and we can quarrel about what we should spend money on, not spend money on, levels of taxes. But 120 years ago, 150 years ago, it never would occur to anyone. That we would run deficits like this because part of the American dream is you never do that to your children. And now, unfortunately, both parties have taken leave of their senses. And so I want to just tell you that this deficit and that is as big a problem as we've ever faced. And, you know, what we're looking at now, I mentioned that, you know, we we basically, I believe, we grabbed Obama by the scruff of the neck and we dragged him back to about $400 billion, Still too high, but we were within arm's length of a mountain's budget. Five straight years of deficit reduction. You know, just like when you mentioned uh, Clinton and Gingrich, look, you know, Republicans would say, well, you know, Clinton only did it because he had a Republican Congress. I look at the Constitution. He was the president of the United States, Clinton, and he signed it. So he does get part credit. Sure. He signed it. So that's what we needed to do, and we reduced that deficit to $400 billion. Where is it today? Well, at the 30 September mark of this year, of 2018, it's going to be almost $900 billion. This is under unified Republican yeah, government, scary. and we're doubling the deficit. By the way, deficit next year is going to be over a trillion and if we do nothing, it's going to be over a trillion as far as the eye can see. Mm-hmm. You know, when you look at that and you look at what we're paying, so what does that all mean, right? Is this all just money? We have to we have to pay interest. We have to pay to service that debt. Mm-hmm. So right now, we're spending over a half trillion dollars a year on nothing but interest. Just as I think for you at home, if you had a credit card and you didn't pay the balance off, you're paying a half trillion dollars. We are scheduled to pay over a trillion in just interest charges. Yeah. Within a decade, and within eight years. Bigger. It's a
2: snowball going down the hill, and it just keeps getting So
3: what bigger. do we do? I think what we have to do is recognize that the Simpson-Bowles Commission that came forward, that had representation across the ideological spectrum and across the partisan divide, came forward with a fiscally tough plan. I mean, part of the reason why Democrats walked away from it is they didn't like the idea of— having that kind of budget but the fact right. of the matter is, is you gotta you gotta do it some republicans walked away from it because we looked at the tax code in a way and said we can't afford these loopholes we can't afford to pay rich people loopholes when we're not balancing the budget so we had to close those loopholes and get that money to put balance the
0: budget chris is part of that tied back to what you alluded to earlier is that does i don't want to prematurely connect the dots but as part of this go back to the term limit issue and is it and is it the just simple lack of willingness of and i'm not being the democrat side or the republican side of this but is it a lack of will based on the fact that i want to get reelected, like you said lou mm-hmm. yes, that is, So therefore that just, is i know that's what we need to do but i'm not willing to do it leadership I get that.
3: To, that is part of it bob but leadership can make a difference here because when mm-hmm. i would bring this mm-hmm. up people say well americans today don't want to they they really want to be in denial about this. Mm. I don't believe that. I, I, I believe think they leadership. Want to be responsible. I, I believe leadership will take you know the Americans where we need to be. I mean, look at World War II, right? I mean, you had Teddy Roosevelt's boy on D Day, on the sands of those shores, fighting, getting shot at. He died a week later of a heart attack. He was fifty seven years young. Mm. But the point is, is that the children of the Skion families, the big families in America fought that war. Mm-hmm. And we raised taxes to pay for it because we we knew we were in a war. Mm-hmm. And also we rationed. So, I mean, because the threat of fascism was so significant, it was existential. We knew we had to rise to the occasion. And if we're talking about this American dream, it's the pursuit of happiness, but it's also setting up the next generation to be in a strong position. We've got to balance this budget. budget. And to do that, yes, you pointed to the political reforms. In the book, I talk about political reforms and then, policy reforms they are related for sure so i would tell you this independent redistricting the the um term limits and also the campaign finance reform of the right kind i'm not for public financing my goodness we're 21 trillion dollars in debt and if you mm. give a dollar to a politician what are they going to do with it they're going spend it. to spend it on negative campaigning 95 percent <laughs> of what they spend it on so do you really want your taxpayer dollars to go for that so if public um Uh, financing is not the answer. What should you do? Well, the book I lay out, you need to cap it. You're probably going to need an amendment to do that. You need to cap it. You need to have transparency in every dollar that's donated. Uh, And then you need to, I believe, you need to ban all outside spending.
0: Big fan of Citizens United then?
3: Well, no. I mean, I think that was a mistake. I mean, I I think that- I was being facetious, Yeah, of course. Uh, Yeah. uh, But you know, it's not just the super PACs. It's all PACs. Mm. I think if you're on a board of a PAC and you believe in a cause, donate Mm -hmm. in your own name. Mm Mm-hmm. But the minute you get outside money involved in this on either side, you lack accountability and transparency. And, you know, this is this republic. I mean, this has got to be addressed. And then we've got to turn to the policy side of this, too, and start
2: making the hard choices that are necessary. Before we do, we have a caller very patiently holding. Tom in Albany. Good morning, Tom. Hello? Tom, you're on the air.
1: Okay. Hey, uh, Chris. Hey, Tom. Nice, nice listening to you. You kind of remind me of my uh, parish priest. You have a nice, lot of nice homilies, and a lot of nice talk about bringing people together. But my complaint is that you're using a false equivalency between Trump and uh, just about anybody that's sane. But let's start with uh, with Obama. You know, when Obama ran up the deficit. He was running up the deficit after the Republicans had gutted the economy. And he, was, he, and he ran up the deficit, you know, to, to revive the economy, which he did, of course, when we look at it, his record. And, and I don't have to tell you or any other American what, where the deficit is coming from now with the uh, you know, tax breaks for the rich, the 99% or whatever the hell, that's going to the wealthy. When you talk about uh, the executive orders, You know, the executive order, you you, you said, well, sometimes the left complains about the right. Well, yeah, I'm complaining about the right because the the last executive order I heard about took away uh, national monuments uh, to open it up to whatever mining interests. Uh, When when Obama had an executive order, he was doing it to get health care for people. When Trump has an executive order... It's to what? What, Chris? What is his executive order about health care? It's to take health care away from people. He, not only has he, you know, he's failed on every every one of his promises, you know. His, what, what What is it? Mexicans will pay for it, waltz. So, Tom, but, but do you, do get you get have on, a on question the for the democracy. congressman? Sometimes right-wing is wrong when they say, you don't people don't need health care and sometimes the left wing is right when they say people do need health care or reserve natural land tom we are going to keep this
2: off the partisan track and we're going to address your issues thank you for your call so congressman gibson
3: well first of all tom thanks for calling in thanks for listening and appreciate your passion for the country we certainly share that actually though you know i must say that he's really making my point um You know, this is what I hear. The left says this about the right. Mm -hmm. I just want to assure Tom that I sit with people from the right who say the same thing about Obama. I'm less interested in pointing fingers, whether it's pointing finger at Obama or Trump, than I am addressing the problem. Mm -hmm. I think fundamentally, what we have to do is recognize that we've walked away from the rule of law. You could come up with a lot of reasons from Sunday why. You know, if you watch President Obama, since I'm only addressing Tom's point here now, so I just want to illustrate. So if you watch him on his videos and that you can find on the internet. He's literally telling his supporters, I'm not a king. I can't do this. You want me to write an executive order for DACA, for example? Right. I, it, the people's representatives need to pass this. this and needs to and come he up. was asking them, begging them. 21 times. To act. 21 times he's, that, I, that I counted, it may be more, where he actually said, I don't have the authority to do this. And whether it be on immigration or the environment, he took executive action, executive orders, which, by the way, the courts ultimately struck down or at least uh, put an injunction on. Right. Because the people's representatives hadn't done it. So, you know, this is my point is that if you're frustrated, you've got to take the Congress back. If you believe that, you know, we need to have certain policy, the kind of policy that uh, President Obama was advocating for – You've got to earn it. You've got to, you've got to win the Congress. If you don't, I mean, this is really what the founders were addressing. Yes. They knew that there would be all kinds of efforts to try to take the control of government to do certain things. But they said, in the absence of consensus, you keep the status quo. And, and the bicameral— mm-hmm. yeah, You've got to work
2: together. The bicameral houses yeah. were developed to give local representation— through the House and statewide representation. Absolutely. Through the Senate. But, and just to show you that I wanna
3: that I'm principled about this and not partisan, I mean the same thing. You know, Trump talked about the refugee ban, right? Look, if you believe in what President Trump was coming forward, he should have worked with the people's representatives. Yes. And he should have said, look, we've got some challenges here with uh, you know, the veracity of some of these uh, applications for asylum and you know, he should have actually changed law rather than issuing an executive order for this because as soon as he did The same dynamic, not the same policy, the same dynamic happened. As soon as Trump issued the executive order, his deepest supporters stood up and cheered. They said, finally, it's happening. But they don't realize that that's the same thing when Obama supporters, when he
2: did this. I mean, this is why I'm saying this pulls the country apart. So we're getting whipsawed. And and when one party's in power, it, it goes to the right. When the other party takes power back, it goes to the left. And- The The motto of the organization that you were a spokesperson for is not left, not right, forward. Well, and for the people. So,
3: you know, the point is, is that we use the Constitution, which it really is a buttress for rule of law, mm -hmm. which, by the way, it's worth mentioning once again that the significance of it is we escaped history. I mean, the history of political change before us. Was violent. All violent. And we said it doesn't have to be like that. We can have peaceful evolutionary change where right. we can have spirited debate. I'm not trying to for a moment homogenize thought. I mean, we're actually proud of the fact that we have different thoughts and it's, what, it's and our strength. It is. I
2: do believe that. It is. But, but, and you were co chair of the Problem Solvers yes. Caucus. And it, tell our listeners what that is. And I, to me, that's become kind of a microcosm of what the entire Congress is supposed to be.
4: Well, really,
3: what we were trying to do is there was first, the first rule was that you don't have to check your principles at the Door. I mean, if there's any 10, if there's 10 different issues and we disagree on seven, we spend about one minute talking about the seven things we disagree, and we spend 59 minutes on the three things we agree upon. So Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example. As with co chair, I mean, one of the issues very passionate to me was veterans, right? How are we going to make sure veterans get the right kind of care, the right kind of tools that they can move forward? So, you know, one of the things I saw leaving the Army is the two software systems we had the dod software system we had the va soft, uh, software system they couldn't talk to one another and so what it meant for veterans is is when they got home and say they had mental health challenges and they walked in the door to the va their medical records didn't follow them and i talked to some bureaucrats they're like well that's no big deal they can just reconstruct the medical records i told them i said do you know how hard as a commander it was so hard for me to inspire a paratrooper to go to get help Because the first thing they tell you is, I don't need help. I don't need help. It's like, man, you blacked out three times. Mm -hmm. You got, you got, you're a good, good man. You're a great paratrooper. You need help. And finally, inspiring them. If you don't, if that medical record doesn't follow them and they say, well, they can just reconstruct it. That may have been eight or 10 sessions with a social worker. They're not going to do it. They're going to walk in the door and they say, "Well, now we're going to reconstruct your mental mm-hmm. health history." They, uh-huh. It was so hard for them to do that in the first place. Mm-hmm. Some of them cried in the. I mean, it's just really hard to open up themselves to be. able – And they say, "Now you got to do that all again to document it." They mm-hmm. just walk out. Mm-hmm. So I'm telling you, the no labels. Uh, we actually did this. We drafted a bill, and interestingly enough, we got the Secretary of Defense and the the VA Secretary to come in and say, "We don't actually need the bill because we've agreed to do it." Well, this happened. We said, "Oh, okay, all right, then we'll hold. We'll hold on the bill." Three months later, both those secretaries come back and say, oh, well, we got a million reasons from Sunday. Well, we're not going to do it. We said, you sons of a guns! You know, you cost us – we put it in law. And President Obama did sign that. Yep. And now you're in 2018, and they're actually moving. Their, and they're hitting their milestones, the first of which was in December of 16. And within a couple of years, you're going to have a fully integrated software system between the DOD and the VA. And that happened because of the No Labels Caucus. Mm-hmm. I was the uh,
2: co-author of that bill. Great place to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about your recommendations, Congressman Gibson, for bringing us back to that point, that rally point, where we can all work together in the same direction. You're listening to Life Happens Radio. Your host, Lou Pirro, here with co-host Bob Vandy, former Congressman Chris Gibson. Stay with us for the last segment. We'll be right back after this short break. born here in the USA. That's Former bringing me back,
3: 1984. Absolutely. Absolutely. Former Great Congressman
2: album. Chris Gibson with us today, co-host Bob Vandy, I'm your host Lou Piro, and it is Memorial Day weekend, so we want to give our shout out to all of the veterans out there, those who are serving now, those who have served, and those who have given their life for this country to get us where we are.
0: And what a better way to salute that than to have someone who has dedicated a majority of his adult life to serving his country, both in Congress and in the military. Yeah, well,
3: thank you both. And, you know, on a day like today and really all days, I think about the paratroopers uh, under my command who lost their life in Iraq uh, fighting for our freedoms. And, you know, uh, Chris Puzateri, Zach Wobbler, I tell their stories of, of bravery and sacrifice in the opening chapter of Rally Point Uh, But as you point out, I mean, you know, for those families, nothing we ever say or do is going to fill the hole that they have from losing their loved one. But what we can do is honor their sacrifice. And I believe the way to honor that is that each and every one of us, every day that we rise, we commit ourselves to do our best to make this country better and to make our community stronger. By doing that, we actually do honor the sacrifices, and I think that's part of the passion, I think, for many of us who are really trying to get us to
2: recognize where we are today and where we need to go. And passion is a great word. Let's take that and run with it, because Americans are passionate people. And right now, I think it's passion misdirected. We have passion going in directions that are not productive, that are not getting us forward to where we're advancing the cause of America. In the book, Chris, you you talk about a number of fundamental reforms. We've touched on a few of the reforms like campaign finance, reform and redistricting. What are the policy issues that you see that are focal to getting the country back moving in that direction so that people can have their passion going in a unified direction? Right. So, you know, uh, first of all, you
3: know, when you talk about these political reforms, they're really aimed at restoring trust and faith between us, the people, and our government. Our representatives, right? So that's why, you know, you bring this forward. Uh, Trump and Sanders both talked about draining the swamp. Well, you know, uh, at this point, we need to hold the president accountable. He said he was going to introduce term limits on his first day in office. I don't know what day it is, but it's not the first day. <laughs> and we haven't seen that happen. I mean, look, we, we that is part of the package that we need to enact because we truly do need reform. We've got to restore faith. But then the whole point of restoring faith is then to start tackling some of the major problems we're having policy-wise. So I do argue in the book for just to highlight a couple. First of all is we have seen presidents from both political parties take us off to war without the consent of the governed. And so I authored a bill in Congress that, uh, you know, it did get a significant amount of support. Unfortunately, never a vote, but it was called the War Powers Reform Act. And what it did is it ensured that we didn't go off to war. We didn't draw money from the Treasury. That's the big change here. We didn't draw money from the Treasury uh, until our representatives went on record taking a vote on behalf of us. So you know that's what's different from the War Powers Resolution that you know that's was enacted over Nixon's uh, veto in 1973. Is the War Powers Reform Act actually puts teeth to it? It actually prohibits them from drawing on the Treasury until we've had that vote. So I think we need to do that uh, because you know we've got to. War Powers are solemn and very important, and nothing speaks more to a people than what they defend. And I think that that's important that we have that reform. The next is budget reform. We've got a budget act, 1974 budget act, that has been part of the problem. Uh, you know, there's so many aspects of it, even the, even the timeline of it. The timeline of it is unrealistic in terms of when the fiscal year begins, 1 well, October, I think that needs to move. But the fact of the matter is, is, uh, you know, we moved to what's called baseline budget in 1974. Mm-hmm. Now, they did it. We Earlier in the show, Bob mentioned that politicians tend to be self-interested. Well, yes, that's true. I mean, I think all Americans, to a degree, are self-interested, and it's really a problem when our politicians, when we don't have the transparency and accountability. But part of the reason why we did the Budget Act of 74 is because because you recall, that was a period of high inflation. No, The politicians were getting their butt kicked. They had to keep voting for the, all this big spending because of the inflation. And so what they decided to do is bake it in. Mm-hmm. That's what baseline budget is. It bakes in this 8% increase even if it's not needed. Mm-hmm. This is what was curious about it. So many of us who are very fiscally conscious believe we should go back to zero-based budgeting. You mentioned that in the book. Yeah. So, I mean, it's common-sense principle here that generally – Used to receive a lot of support uh, among conservatives, but was curious when I had to talk with Louie Gomart on the floor one day, and we were talking about this. He's a very conservative member from Texas, and I thought I'd play with him a little bit. Louie was a friend. I said, oh, you mean Jimmy Carter's idea? And he goes, no, I'm talking about zero. I said, yeah. I said, "Take what we're going to do, Louie. Here's what we're going to do. All we're going to do is we're going to put zero-based budgeting in. And, you know, presidential campaigns and we'll see what happens. And he saw that Jimmy Carter was actually the first. Why? Because Carter announced for presidency in December of 74, a few months after this baseline budgeting, he knew it was going to be a disaster. Mm-hmm. He was a governor, you mm-hmm. know, from mm-hmm. from, Georgia. from Georgia. So now. look, the the problem is, is that is one that's only one of many. Right. I mean, the other issue is our mandatory spending programs that are on autopilot. We're going to have to address that in the book, too.
0: I think you use education as one of the examples of that, if I remember correctly. Yeah,
3: I mean, that's part of it. It's all, it's got to be on the table. There isn't a single aspect of the budget, budget writ large here. I'm talking about both the expenditures and the revenues. There's nothing that's sacrosanct here. We have to put it all on the table. And if you believe, as I do, that this is not only a economic imperative, but a moral
2: imperative. And we talk on the show almost every week, about the aging of America and the fact that baby boomers like us are aging through the system, turning 65 at the rate of 10,000 a day. Now the front edge of the baby boomers is age 72. They're still caregivers for the for their aging parents who are in their 80s and 90s, but as they face retirement, they're looking down the road at a system where Medicare is on very unstable yeah. ground. Social Security a little bit better, but still needs some reforms. Medicaid has been just piled on by all of the programs that have been kicked out of Medicare. So now Medicaid budgets are, are expanding and, and bursting at the seams. And, and we've talked about this and, and you've, you've given us a ray of hope. So in 2050, it's going to turn around. But what do we do for the next 30 years? Yeah. Well, first of all, let's, let's acknowledge it's a nice problem to have, right? We're
3: living longer. And candidly, we're we're not only living longer, but largely living healthier. Although we have some concerns now, the opioid situation actually has seen the life expectancy, we've had dips now. Mm. Uh, curiously enough, sadly enough, in the last two years, it's impacted by the losses we've had from opioids. But generally speaking for Americans, we're living longer and healthier. So that's that's a good problem to have, right? So we have to adjust the structure that supports that. And in the book, I do take this on. I mean, I, I hope I take on all, stare down all the hard choices. I mean, that was the whole point of Simpson-Bowles. Is I, I, mean, I mean, look, I faced fire for the country. I hope I could at least take political fire for right. for doing the right thing. It, it takes
2: adult so, decisions and, and an ability to put the country before self, not only on the battlefield, but in, in the halls of Congress. And, and I see that just...
3: Det- so on Medicare, for example, I mean, the estimates are, and these are nonpartisan estimates, that we have $50 billion a year in fraud, waste, and abuse because of the structure we have. The structure we have is a fee for services. So at one point, one of our TV channels, they had this uh, sort of like you paid for it. Uh, This is not the local one. I know Greg Floyd does a great job on this, but this was a national look, right? And what we found is we the people, there was a hospital in Texas and they bought a whole bunch of expensive kit. It was, you know, really good kit, but then they didn't have a plan to pay for it. So they just started sending in bills to us for the Medicare and the government paid it. Mm. So, you know, this is why I've been a supporter of putting more transparency and accountability. And this is why the Medicare Advantage, quite frankly, Medicare Advantage, we have, we've it's, come in 40% under budget. I mean, I think that's one and example. that
2: is one of the bright spots. Yeah. Boy, that hour flies.
0: Yeah, no kidding. Let's take Chris another round, Chris Gibson,
2: hour. thank you so much for thank being you. here. Thank Bob you. Bob Vandy, pleasure as always. Likewise, Lou. We wish all of you a very happy and healthy Memorial Day weekend. We hope you enjoy it. Get out and have that picnic. We'll be back again next week. You're listening to Life Happens Radio. Are you prepared? on Talk Radio, 10 a.m., 103.1 FM. Have a great weekend. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
1: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time.
2: No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky.